Welcome to Small Screen Science, the podcast where we look at the science behind our favourite TV shows. I'm Karen. I'm Emma, and this episode is called Cool, 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 Cool Science. <laughs> it's so hard to say because we're chatting about the science behind one of our all-time favourite sitcoms, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Yeah, and as as always, don't forget to watch out for for our references to the show and quotes that we try to shoehorn in to our episode. Oh, shoehorn in! Title of your sex tape. Bing pop. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> there, there, ladies and gentlemen, are our first three, um, and we'll give you a full list at the end of the episode. So let's see how many you get. Shoehorned yes. in, yeah, yeah, shoehorned, yeah. Just, I think that's genuinely shoehorned in. Those, <laughs> those first three. <laughs> pretty painful scripting, wasn't it? Um, but I mean, Karen, are you really going to sit there like that to record this episode, leaning back like a matinee girl with your hands folded in your lap like a pervert? <laughs> Well, that's a bit rude, isn't it? But I, I do hear Captain Holt there. I think, yes, Captain Holt, completely deadpan. I love Captain Holt. It's my oh, favorite. we do. He's we my do. favorite character. There we go. So there we go, listeners. There's four already. See how many you can get. We'll give you a list at the end. Um, so if you can't tell, which I'm sure you probably can, we actually both absolutely love Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And sometimes in these episodes, one of us has seen like more of the show than the other. Um, and one of us maybe has to play catch up and watch an entire series before, before we record. But actually for this episode, we've both seen like all seasons of Brooklyn Nine-Nine multiple times. Yes, definitely multiple times. Yeah, I just love it. It's a brilliant show. And uh, I just love the comedy behind it. The You know, it's really well done. The actors are just amazing. And I love the fact it's really diverse show as well. It's a great just cast, effortlessly, yeah. yeah, effortlessly. Effortlessly diverse. Wow, that's a statement, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> And actually, that's quite in- that's quite an interesting discussion, actually, about the diversity of the cast, because um, one of the actors, the one that plays um, Rosa Diaz. Mm, um, she, yeah. So she was doing um, an interview about the show and about how she got into the show. And she told her agent, I want to really do something that involves, you know, Parks and Rec or something like that. You know, a comedy show, a little bit like that. I'm desperate to do a show like that. Mm. And she got uh, she got an audition. And she actually auditioned for Amy Santiago as well. Um, And the actress, um, Melissa, she got cast as Amy Santiago. And even though Stephanie was really chuffed for her, she she actually cried. She burst into tears because she thought, you know, the situation in American TV is you have one Latino Mm -hmm. actor in the, you know, in the series. And therefore she wouldn't have a chance at, at getting the other character. But actually she did because they chose her because of her acting, not because of, you know, because they wanted to make she sure they covered diversity. Rosa. Yeah. And she yeah, I just, couldn't imagine it without her, you know. No. She's just such a good actress. And it's a really interesting interesting idea, isn't it, about American TV. That kind of um you know We still live in a box ticking age, which is mm. quite hard to see. Yeah. But it, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned Parks and Rec there. So spoiler alert, another one of my all time <laughs> favourite shows that we will definitely be covering at some point. Um, but it's um, I think a lot of people do like Parks and Rec who also mm. like Brooklyn Nine-Nine as well as the US office. Because yeah. um, actually one of the show creators, Mike Shaw, masterminded almost all of these shows. He had his fingers in all of them. And they mm. do have a very similar, they all have very distinct identity, but they yeah. all have a very similar kind of like deadpan, quick cut, very witty, not yes. always like acknowledged, just very funny script. They're all, yeah. they're all brilliant. Yeah. And it's, it's, you're right. It's dead. The deadpanness of it is brilliant because mm. that's why Captain Holt is such a great character. 
um, just absolutely deadpan about everything. And that's, that's <laughs> exactly. what makes it great. Yeah. <laughs> I love, and I love how like throw away some of the funniest lines are. So there's, mm. there's one line which um, I actually didn't realise until you told me about, was it? But yeah. um, where Boyle is talking uh, very casually about his cousin and he's like, it's such a classic Boyle trait that not, we know we don't recognise our talent. My cousin Susan didn't know she could sing until her late 40s. <laughs> Nobody acknowledged it in the cast and so many of us apparently in the audience totally missed it. Yeah. But if you connect that, it, Boyle's cousin Susan. Yeah. Susan, Susan Boyle. Boyle's got talent. <laughs> it's it's like it's the depth of, of the writing that almost ev- like no line is wasted. You know, there, there's every there's just so many little things woven in. I love it. It's like every time you watch it again, you see more bits. And that's what's great about seeing it again. And and I have to say that is amazingly funny. Oh, you were being halt. <laughs> <laughs> not not very good halt. Not quite yeah. the same. Not quite the same panache as old Raymond. How does that Andre do it? The actor is just funny. amazing. Yeah, yeah, no, I can't do it. It's that's, amazing. That's so you know, it's just too much. Too much. <laughs> <laughs> too much in my voice. That is amazingly funny. There must be an amazing roster of like bloopers because there's no way working with that amazing <laughs> cast that you're not cracking up on a daily basis. No, I'd ruin so many not. scenes. Yeah, I, I, I just. It's just such a brilliant show. So I guess we ought to talk about the science of humour then, haven't we? Yeah, let's we? get on and, with and some comedy. science yeah. comedy. So we've covered quite a lot of police science, haven't mm. we, in previous yeah. episodes. So this one, we were just, we're going straight on the comedy train. Yeah. Basically, if you think of it from a scientific point of view, humour is the stimulus and laughter is the response. If you're thinking of, you mm. know, from a, from a neurological point of let's view. Let's suck all the fun out of it <laughs> and take it into a lab. Yeah. No, okay. Yeah. Um, And actually, there was a large international study in 2016. And what they did was they went across 24 different cultures and they actually investigated laughter Mm. in 24 different cultures. And they found that that people pick up on the same subtle cues of laughter and people laughing. So if you watch people laugh, it's possible to work out who is related to whom. Really? Just by looking at the way they laugh and, wow. and that kind of thing. And all these people across the 24 different cultures were able to do that. And they would be able to, to, you know, to work out the relationship between these different laughers, if you like. Laughers, I love that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing that laughter is universal just across the globe, across all human cultures. But it's, yeah. I mean, did you know that laughter even exists in some form of like, chimps, bonobos and, and even rats? Yeah. It's not, it's not necessarily, particularly with rats, it's not necessarily laughter as we would recognise it as laughter mm. in humans, but it's, it's something called like a play vocalisation. Yeah, and actually if you tickle a rat, so if anybody's got pet rats, <laughs> you, just, you can tickle them. Send us a video <laughs> of you tickling your rat. I'd like to hear um, the noise. <laughs> yeah, and they, they actually, so if you tickle young rodents, they'll emit this really high frequency ultrasonic chirping, mm. and that's analogous to laughter. Um, apparently it's really difficult to tickle older rats because they're not up for it they know they're quite resistant oh, really? to tickling so if you do it's a bit like humans really <laughs> yeah that's true that's true mm. but apparently um as well if you look at the rats that were tickled quite a lot as a child versus rats that weren't tickled quite a lot as a child the ones that were tickled will laugh much easier at other things when they're adults so mm. make your babies laugh guys yeah so it's a generation yeah <laughs> but um it just it, there are so many funny rat studies in terms of yeah. comedy of science and actually there was uh, one study where a team of researchers played hide and seek with rats <laughs> can you imagine hide and seek with a rat I so know. they had they had a room that had got hiding places for humans and hiding places for rats that's just brilliant <laughs> it's so funny and apparently the rats took a few weeks to learn the rules <laughs> 
but they were rewarded with a tickle when they when they hid and were found. So they did this ultrasonic vocalization. Um, but I'm just imagine being that researcher. You come home after a really long day playing hide and seek with rats. Mm. You know, your partner was like, "How, how was your day, love?" I'm like, "I don't want to sound dramatic, but today has been suboptimal." <laughs> I see what you did there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I see Slap what you did there. In. Okay. <laughs> I think Holt features quite a lot in our episodes. <laughs> I think so. Um, so what's really interesting about the rats is the fact that um, they, they did this ultrasonic vocalisation when they were out and about in the room, but when they were hiding, they didn't. They knew not to. I think that's to. really key. They that's knew clever. when they were hiding, they thought maybe the humans would be able to hear it. But they understood obviously. the concept of hiding. That's really exactly. Cool. I must yeah. be quiet. I must be quiet. So it's amazing. So let's bring this back to humans then. Go on then. Um, so, so we start developing a sense of humour as early as six weeks, apparently. Oh, wow. Um, and this is when babies begin to laugh and they smile in response to stimuli. So, mm. you know, in response to something you're doing. A little tickle. Um, now, I sent thing. you a, a YouTube clip, didn't oh, I? About about laughing babies uh, if anyone could really see our whatsapp thread it's just <laughs> utterly ridiculous but yeah this this was so funny and it's got 115 million views so if you haven't seen it yet come join the party um and this is a baby laughing hysterically at ripping paper so if you if you google that so baby laughing hysterically at ripping paper and honestly it's, it's the funniest thing it is pure joy yeah. it's pure joy it's literally just someone ripping a piece of paper in front of a baby which is propped up on a sofa and they are mm. so outrageously happy <laughs> yeah it's wonderful it's like... you cannot watch it and not smile yeah it's so lovely so, so definitely go and do that it's, yeah it'll make your day it's brilliant <laughs> but i mean so not all of our researchers obviously come from youtube no <laughs> <laughs> we needed to find out a little bit more and, and as you listeners well know we always try and talk to some experts mm. and we would have spoken to a psychologist but in the immortal words of gina linetti Psychologists are just people who weren't smart enough to become psychics. <laughs> I love that. I'm not sure our um, guest psychologists would agree with that, but it's no, brilliant. I no, just love it. But we don't agree with it. But just such a funny quote. Uh, uh, so we actually spoke to Professor Sophie Scott, CBE, and she's director of the Institute of Cognitive Neuroscience at UCL. And she actually studies laughter and the interpretation of language. And she actually dabbles in stand-up comedy as well. She does. So, yes, indeed. What does studying laughter look like? Well, I started doing this because not because I never set out to study laughter. I set out to study, um, you know, the information in voices and why we sound the way we do. And I was interested in speech, but I was also interested in emotional expressions like screams and um, growls. And I started looking at laughter because I started looking, trying to look more at positive emotions and then it's it's extraordinary. It's kind of everywhere. It's a very, very commonly expressed nonverbal expression of emotion. It's more like an animal call than it is like speech, but we use it in very, very nuanced ways. So I've been asking questions about how how our brains process laughter, how we get information out of laughter, what sort of stuff that means to us. I'm interested in individual differences, why people do respond differently to laughter and you can see elements of that in brain responses i'm interested in you know how we learn to laugh and i'm interested in how laughter is used so what's actually happening in interactions with laughter so for example we found that people find jokes funnier if they are followed by a laugh than if they don't and laughter does seem to be a sort of 
I know it, it, it seems to have quite an interesting impact on how how funny something seems to you. It's just that it having laughter adjacent to it. And if you tried to watch any television programs that have been filmed under lockdown conditions that would normally have laughter that now don't have much laughter, it's very noticeable how different they feel. I was going to ask that actually as soon as you said um, about laughing after a joke. I wondered whether the laugh track that's often employed in particularly a lot of sitcoms was um, not just a tool to disguise dead space, but actually to encourage the feeling yeah. of you're having a good time and you're enjoying this show. It's, I, I mentioned this result to a couple of comedians and they both said the same thing, which is, well, yeah, of course, if I hear the audience laugh, I become funnier. Ah, you know, so it's 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 much more of an interaction than we normally think of it, or I used to think of it anyway. Let's pause here, Karen. Do you believe yes. in fate or divine intervention or anything like that? Well, it's quite complicated, isn't it? Because I, I have to say, if you if you sat in on our interview, you'd have to believe in divine intervention or fate because yeah. uh, it was amazing. So this <laughs> this is crazy. So we uh, this yeah this particular interview is one such kind of occasion because during mm. our chat we were just having a you know a nice chat about lockdown and how we were all getting on um mm. and she mentioned that with her family she'd made a ritual of every evening spending some time dedicating a little part of the day to watching a comedy show together mm. and out of nowhere what does she say we're in the middle of watching brooklyn 99 for the third time Nice. Uh, we we hadn't actually told her because normally when we email people, we tell them what show uh, you know we're actually going to do. Mm. And in this case, we changed our mind literally the day before which comedy show we were going to do. Um, and she just she just dropped it in the conversation. It was brilliant. We were so excited. It was, it was perfect. It was so yeah. perfect. Um, and, we, and we basically shrieked at the screen yeah. in a way that we absolutely will not put into the episode. But of course, we got her take on the show. Now that we know you're a massive Brooklyn Nine-Nine fan, have you got anything to add from your perspective? <laughs> um, one of the things I really like about Brooklyn Nine-Nine is it managed, you know, again, given that no nothing out there is going to make everybody laugh all the time and over time and place that will change. But I think they do a very good job of apparently quite effortlessly being very, very funny. But also it's a very kind of diverse and inclusive show and they tackle some really difficult stuff. Um, that one where Terry gets stopped looking for his kid's toy, it's much heart going to your mouth, but they, they still sort of navigate it in a way. There's that Seinfeld thing that there would never be any learnings. And you just, and actually this showed that, no, you can have learning over the course of something that's funny and clever. And actually the learning, they earn it, you know? There's, it's, it's, a, it's come about from the way the plot's constructed and the reaction of the people concerned. So I think it's really, really good. It has a very good heart and it's very funny. Well, it's one I mean, of those have, shows I, that you can watch over and over yeah. again as well, isn't it? Like yes. my partner and I, we definitely have quotes from it that just appear in our everyday life. Because <laughs> as you were talking about some shows earlier, sometimes, like you said, they don't always leave room for laughter afterwards, but that yeah. almost makes it have slightly more impact because the throwaway nature of some yeah. of the hilarious things that they say. <laughs> like there was one bit where Boyle was lying about what he was doing in the evening. He was like, oh, I'm going to a singles cooking course, uh, <laughs> making pizza. Tonight's menu pepperoni <laughs> and we just we we bring that up so often whenever we talk about just doing something on our own they waste nothing <laughs> the only other thing that i have to say is that my um my partner and my son think that i'm very much like captain holt because i there's one episode when they entertain me by taking to a thermostat museum and i would go to a thermostat museum really? no thermometer thermometer museum oh, and, and, and it's just like i don't i really fail to see why this is supposed to be funny that's obviously a great way of spending the afternoon <laughs> 
that's wonderful. I have a friend that's obsessed with the pencil museum in Stroud. Perhaps you might enjoy that one as well. Oh, definitely, definitely. I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm very interested in niche museums, but I, I'm, I actually look out for thermostats like in my natural environment. When we're watching television, I'll go, oh, look, look at the thermostat. And so, <laughs> really? <laughs> oh, the plot thickens. This is a really deep interest in thermostats. There's a... This is slightly painful. Many years ago, probably maybe about four or five years ago, I joined this Facebook group because someone suggested that, you know, you get that, oh, you might find this group interesting. The algorithm suggests it. And it's called Photograph, Photo of My Thermostat. And all you posted (laughs) it were photographs of your thermostat. Brilliant. (laughs) I think the best, was it the best one I ever got was I found a vintage one still in use in a house in America that had a mercury switch and they've almost all disappeared because the mercury Gosh. switch is I know and everyone's just like this is an incredible you would you know this is this house should be made a museum <laughs> wow <laughs> I've got one last film thing to look out for which is I I was part of a study looking at emotional reactions in horses to human vocalizations and horses do their facial expressions oh, with their we ears oh saw that yeah yeah and they oh, right. they point their ears forward if they're happy that kind of both his forward, both his back is unhappy, ears off to the side is neutral. And if you look at horses in films, like we watched uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and if you watch it just looking at the horses, it's a film about two really pissed off horses. <laughs> They're really not enjoying most of what's going on. It's terrific. Amazing. And there's a longer version of that anecdote um, on our Patreon page because we thought it was so funny. You know, we had to put in the longer version. So so if you're interested and you'd like to um, give us, you know, a little bit of cash every every month, you know, price of a cup of coffee to help us with the, the costs of running a podcast, then you can go along and listen to that extended version. You, you can. It was I had I'd completely forgotten that we'd gone down so many rabbit holes. And then when I was re-listening back to the interview to edit it for this, it was just an absolute goldmine. And I was laughing so much at myself. It was, it was so funny. But um, but it was really interesting that Sophie mentioned sitting down with her family to watch a comedy mm. programme. I mean, do you watch comedy with other people? I do. I watch some comedy. So Brooklyn Nine-Nine, we watch together, for example. But there's other comedy that, you know, Ben will watch um, that he's interested in and I'll, mm. and there are others that I will watch. So some together and some not. Yeah, bit mm. of a mix. Well, it's interesting because research actually shows that when we laugh socially with other people, our brains release endorphins. Yeah, and, they, and these are produced in the pituitary gland. And this is a pea-sized gland at the base of the bottom of the hypothalamus um, at the back of the brain. And the main function of endorphins is to inhibit the communication of pain signals. Mm. And this can give us a feeling of euphoria. And that's very similar to the effect of opioids, believe it or not. Feeling of euphoria. Title of your sex tape. Oh, God. <laughs> yes. It's got that it's one gonna, in. It's, it's got that one in. a few of those, isn't it? <laughs> so, oh, Jake Peralta will be so proud. <laughs> so this release of endorphins might actually support the formation and reinforcement and, and the maintenance of social bonds between human beings. So if you want to bond with someone, let's all watch some comedy together. Yeah. Um, but the, the kind of pleasurable and calming effects of the endorphin release might kind of signal safety and promote these feelings of like, togetherness. Yeah, so watching comedy together is a really, really good idea. So we should definitely all follow Sophie's example and sit yeah. down as a family and watch some comedy. Yeah. Um, the other thing about comedy is, uh, that's quite interesting is that if you've got, um, you know, you've got to do something that's really, really tedious or boring, you know, you've got you know, a particular job or, you know, an activity that you need to do and you know what it's like, you get stuck halfway through, don't you? You start drifting off mm. um, and um, end up, you know, watching 
you know, watching rubbish YouTube channels or whatever. But um, research has shown that you're more likely to persevere with a tedious activity if you're exposed to a humorous stimuli. Exposed to a humorous stimuli, really bad title of your sex tape. <laughs> <laughs> Could be, couldn't it? <laughs> uh, I'm not so confident in that one. No, no, that's not <laughs> So people who watch a funny video clip before they do a task will apparently actually spend about two times as long on the tiresome task as compared mm. to people who've watched a neutral or a positive video before. Well, positive but not funny video before. Yeah. But you do need to be really careful because obviously while you're watching these comedy uh, video clips, you can end up down a rabbit hole, can't you? And 16 you hours later, you're watching comedy YouTube clips of cats or giant panda babies. Oh, yeah. giant panda babies. <laughs> yeah. Been down that rabbit hole. Yep. <laughs> so, so, I mean, let's, well, let's move on a bit from cute animals and the internet and maybe we'll chat to another expert. So did you mm. know that there are actually different theories of comedy? Yeah, so humour studies have traditionally been found under the umbrella of philosophy, believe it mm. or not. So that's, mm. where they, that's where they started, under philosophy. Um, but as we've seen, you know, neuroscientists and um, psychologists have, have shown an interest as well. And they've been joined by those studying the media, obviously, which makes sense. Mm. Yeah, so we spoke to Brett Mills, visiting professor of media at Edgehill University, to find out a little bit more. We know that there are different comedy theories or theories of comedy. Could you just run through those for us? So it's normally accepted that there's three main comedy theories, uh, superiority, incongruity and relief theory. The superiority theory goes all the way back to Aristotle and Plato, who were kind of the first people to look at comedy. Um, though They don't talk about comedy that much. But the bits that they do show that they were very suspicious of comedy and didn't think it was uh, a good thing for a good citizen to engage in. So the superiority theory is the idea that we use humour basically to make ourselves superior to other people. So whenever you use whenever you use jokes to make somebody else look ridiculous or to say something brilliant about yourself, uh, you're using comedy in a kind of superiority theory way. And this is why somebody like Aristotle was very kind of dismissive of humour as a whole. He said, actually, it has a very negative social purpose because you just use it to be horrible to people and make yourself feel better. So that's the first main theory. Um, the second one, which is kind of the more widely accepted one now, and, and, and most people who are developing humour theories draw from this one, which is the incongruity theory. Um, which has lots of different formulations, is, is normally kind of seen as being crystallised by the philosophers Kant and Schopenhauer completely separately uh, in terms of them just kind of thinking about how the world works. And the incongruity theory is simply the idea that what we find funny is two things coming together that we wouldn't normally expect to come together. Um, so that comedy very uh, usually would kind of set up an expectation and then deliver something that you didn't expect. So puns work in that way, very obviously, that somebody will say mm. a sentence, expecting you to understand a word in a particular way, and then the joke kind of reveals that somebody's using that word in a different way. So he mentioned here that there's a small problem with this incongruity theory, and mm. that's that not all incongruity is funny. So some can actually be quite scary and quite jarring. So, for example, if you came home to find a bowling ball in your fridge, uh, you might find that funny, or like I did came downstairs to find the porridge oats in the fridge and the milk in the cupboard um <laughs> that that was quite funny yeah. but if you came home and found 
like a, a severed head in your fridge it's not incongruous so but it's not funny <laughs> not that so becomes very scary <laughs> yeah so so this incongruity theory really relies on expectations mm. and it also relies on cultural expectations as well yeah um and a set of assumptions that we have that we share as a community or as a culture mm. um and these have to then be twisted um, to, to provide that surprise mm. um, and this of course means there's a bit of a debate about whether comedy has to rely on shared stereotypes if you think of some of your classic jokes they do rely on you having a particular stereotype um, and and that stereotype is then questioned within the humour and that's what makes it funny yeah and and from that the debate kind of becomes whether comedy reinforces stereotypes mm. or actually whether comedy can be a bit of a vehicle for changing stereotypes yeah so one of my favourite surprising incongruous moments in the show is the is the lineup where Jake Peralta gets them all to sing I Want It That Way from the Backstreet Boys. Do you it's remember so that funny. one? It's yeah. so funny. So they've got five <laughs> suspects in a room. They're watching mm. from behind the, the glass. Yeah. This is the funniest thing. <laughs> so what he does is he starts them off singing it um, because, you know, this person who'd been at the crime scene had been singing this tune. So he starts it off and there's a bit of a back and forth between him and the five different suspects. And it's just so funny and really classic. And you're having a giggle and a laugh along. And then suddenly the woman who's next to Jake in the in the you know the witness box suddenly says yeah. that's him number 5 number 5 killed my brother and it just like and it it stops it stops the whole thing you're yeah. going on this like really high energy train yeah. and it just derails and it's so so funny the quick switch uh, and the kind of the misplacement incongruity of that whole situation yeah. is so so funny it's just such a brilliant example of the you know of that comedy theory in action it's brilliant i implore you listeners to watch it on on youtube if you go mm. back and watch that scene it's just a couple of minutes of pure joy um <laughs> but um, and anyway um mm. incongruity is only the second theory mm. so we've gone off on a tangent here let's go back to brett and find out more about the others and then the third theory which comes from freud uh, and like much of Freud is largely discredited today, um, is the relief theory. And that, I think it has some value. The relief theory is simply the idea that we're repressed in our everyday lives and what comedy is is an expression of that repression. And this is why Freud would say we spend so much time making jokes about things like sex and death because those are the kind of things that we're oppressed about in society. And so we express those through humour as a form of relief. The interesting thing about Freud's approach is he seems to actually therefore suggest that comedy has a really important psychological value because he implies or he, he talks through the idea that if we didn't have that relief, then actually that repression might go somewhere else. Say it might turn into violence or, or it might turn into psychosis. And in terms of thinking about sitcom, applying all of those, actually you can see how in a way they all apply. It's quite clear in comedy, very often we are invited to find people ridiculous and stupid. As an audience, we watch it and we might find ourselves feeling superior to the characters. So the superiority theory works. The incongruity theory works because very often you're watching comedy and surprising things that you don't expect happen. Of course, the relief theory kind of applies because much humour, particularly maybe in a British context, is about things like sex and things that we repress. And we find that stuff very kind of funny. So actually, the three theories can explain kind of different bits of sitcom and different bits of comedy. Is there an easy answer, perhaps not, for, um, you know, say the three of us were sat in a room watching exactly the same show why some of us might find certain things really funny and the others might cringe 
or just roll their eyes and, and absolutely not find something funny at all? Um, there's sort of an easy answer and then there sort of isn't an easy answer to that, which is clearly when you encounter comedy, you're bringing a whole set of kind of personal responses and ideas and connections and beliefs and politics to that material. So when you kind of talk about the incongruity theory, because it disturbs expectations, we have to bring our expectations to things. And we will largely have the same expectations if you come from the same culture, but we might have different views on those expectations or we might have different relationships to those expectations. And so therefore, the ways in which we would kind of understand that material would be would be different. What's interesting about that is that there's very rarely any discussion about whether something that is a joke is actually a joke or not. So if we watch something together and I was finding it hilarious and you weren't, chances are you'd still be able to recognise that the comic moments were intended as comic moments. You'd still be able to go, oh, I can see that that is a joke. It's just that either you don't find it funny or you might find it offensive or whatever. But it's very rare where people disagree over whether something is actually a joke or not. So often it's said or thought that comic responses are instinctive. Mm. But from what Brett said, um, he's arguing that, that he's not actually convinced that this is the case. Um, and he said it's more likely to be a two-step process. Mm. So first of all, we have to recognise that something is funny. And mm. then we have to decide whether we think we find it funny or not. So we recognise the joke, first of all, and then we make a decision about whether we find that joke funny. And then we put it into context with our own experiences, don't we? Mm. Yeah. But it's interesting. So physically recognising a joke is something that artificial intelligence can actually struggle to do. Yeah, and there's been a piece of research on this, actually. And they found that um, if you provide a computer or AI with a mixture of comic one-liners and then also mix that up with proverbs they can only spot the comedy 53 percent of the time which is only just above just guessing yeah if you think about it yeah yeah um and and ai really struggles to to spot incongruity in humor mm. because basically you need to be a human you have to have those cultural references mm. and those stereotypes to be able to spot it um and in this research the computer recognized jokes by spotting the fact that they quite often they have alliteration in them or antonyms and and it was looking out for those in actual fact in order uh -huh. to spot whether something was funny or not and so when ai is actually used to try and write jokes what they what ai tends to do is produce puns that are manufactured from homophones so um what kind of tree is nauseated i don't know what kind of tree a, a sick of all oh my god that's a, that's a yeah. classic AI joke, that one, <laughs> apparently. I like that one. Mm. I'm going to use that. That's a good Christmas like cracker joke, it do you is. think? It is. Christmas cracker joke, yeah, definitely. Oh, but maybe so, that's that's where room for AI humour comes in, Christmas yeah. crackers. Mm. Maybe that, yeah, maybe the most, if you look at most Christmas cracker jokes, they probably have been written by AI, Rough to be level. fair. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, thankfully, sitcoms still have human writers. So um, we, let's bring it back to sitcoms and TV, shall we? No doubt, no doubt, no doubt, no doubt, no doubt. Cool, 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 cool. <laughs> Toit. Nice. If I had a mic right now, I'd drop it. <laughs> Actually, I do have a mic and I'm not going to drop it yeah, because it's probably, really expensive. Yeah, it's probably best. You <laughs> press, best you don't do that right now. No, let's not. So in sitcom, you quite often have maybe a laughter track. What's the purpose of that in terms of sitcom? So the laugh track has kind of a historical purpose. So the vast majority of comedy when it began on television and, and a lot of it kind of began on radio before television 
or was on radio and television at the same time. Most of that came from theatre. So this is interesting idea that lots of television comes out of theatrical traditions. And obviously in the theatre, you had a live audience. And when television began and radio began and they were trying to find comedians, the only place they could go was to the music hall to vaudeville and to go to theatre and to get people from there. And of course, those people were used to working with an audience. And so actually, if you look at the very early parts of sitcom, it evolves from sort of sketch shows, sort of vaudeville, sort of musicals, slowly into sitcom. And again, it's kind of interesting that you have a, you have this auditory kind of uh, contribution in terms of comedy, which you don't with kind of melodrama that you could in EastEnders have the sound of people crying when a sad thing happens on the screen. You can have audience reactions in serious stuff, but we don't. We do it with comedy. So in quite a few sitcoms, like Brooklyn Nine-Nine, they don't actually use a laugh track anymore. And it's possibly because the theatrical tradition is now quite old and, and a lot of the people that are making TV shows at the moment won't have quite the same cultural references in life as the show creators did, who were kind of creating sitcoms at the, the birth of the genre. Yeah, that's right. And But there is actually a, quite an important role that laughter tracks play in modern, you know, in modern sitcoms. Mm. And that's because there are so many TV channels now and we do flick through the TV channels, don't we? And yeah. having that laugh track in the background is a real indicator immediately. I've got a sitcom, you know, and if, you, if you're looking for something, you're looking for humour, then that gives you a real indication that you're in the right place and stop. Mm. And this is actually backed up by research as well. Mm. So studies have shown that people are much more likely to laugh in response to a video clip that has canned laughter in than mm. to one that doesn't have a laugh track. And actually people are 30 times more likely to laugh in the presence of other people than alone. So it's all about feeling of community as well. Yeah, so you feel like you're in a, you know, you're in a, a comedy stand-up show or something like that. It feels like you're there laughing with other people. Mm. Um, but a lot of comedy is actually slapstick. And you know the old classic, Slipping on a Banana Skin. Mm. Yeah. I really don't like slapstick comedy. No, I'm not a big I fan. I find it really predictable. Yeah, although I do like farce, but sometimes farce I thought you were going to say farce. <laughs> no, not farce, no, farce. <laughs> no, not farce. The farce joke, okay. No, no that's, quite, uh, that's quite childish humour though, isn't it? So people do find that funny. <laughs> yes, they do, I will. They do put I'll be in. honest, I will laugh at a fart. <laughs> Sorry. Well, there you go. <laughs> Let's get back to the show. Let's Yay. Let's show. Um, so in the actual facts, some physicists got together and actually did, wrote a paper, or carried out some research on slipping on a banana skin, believe it or not. Such um, fun. Yeah, so, so fantastic that in 2014 they won the Ig Nobel Prize for physics. Yeah, brilliant. Um, and what they investigated was they measured the amount of friction between a shoe and a banana skin <laughs> and between the banana skin and the floor when a person steps on a banana skin. I mean, that's brilliant. Fancy that's studying ama that. That's amazing. Just brilliant. Uh, presumably they had people in the study whose job it was to slip on a banana skin. Mm. Rubbish <laughs> it's just like, I'd like to I'd like to recruit you for for a for special paper that we're doing some special research. Right. I'd just like you to spend all day for the next five days slipping on a banana skin. Uh, but just sign this piece of paper so that we're not liable <laughs> if you get concussion. Yay. <laughs> now we come to the point in the show where we always like to pull out a couple of random papers. Um, and we found a couple of really interesting papers, didn't we, about comedy. Uh, there are about so comedy, many wonderful papers in the dusty corners of the Google yeah. Scholar archives. Um, <laughs> so there's one really interesting paper, a 2018 paper, which had a look at evil laughter. Mm. Fantastic. So yeah. it was it was thought actually that kind of 
I mean, it's, to be honest, evil laughter is not something we see in the show an awful lot. Actually, a lot of the characters don't even really laugh at each other, even though they're all being quite ridiculous mm. and quite funny. But there are a few occasions where some of the bad characters, so we've got um, Madeleine Wunsch and we've got the Vulture, will ca- well, they'll let out a bit of a mm. cackle, particularly the Vulture sometimes. Yeah. Um, and it's said that actually the function of evil laughter in a show is a really good signal to the audience that said character is vicious or malicious. So they will yeah. they will kind of be laughing because they're getting a sick pleasure out of like planning something villainous or thinking about causing harm so that you know as an audience member to attach the kind of the villainy to that character. Yeah, so so as as you said, villains laugh when they plan or mm. do evil things, whereas in contrast a hero will laugh when they build or enjoy a pro-social mm. relationship. Um, and that's the real contrast between the two. And that's how you can tell who's the villain, who's the evil villain and who is the hero yeah. of the story. And one of our favourite funny characters actually um, was a regular called uh, Adrian Pimento. So he was absolutely mm. bonkers. He's so, so funny. And the actor is, is hilarious in everything mm. he does. Um, and he plays Rosa's boyfriend and even fiancé for a little part of the time. So we thought we can't do this show without having a quick little look at Adrian <laughs> and have a look at actually what it is that made him so funny to us. And actually, while mm. we were looking into that, we kind of found ourselves more into the murky world of um, the science behind undercover police work because Adrian has yeah, been undercover yeah. for a very long time and it impacts him quite heavily in his character. But also, actually, it's a, it's a semi-regular theme, isn't it? Because Jake, in the early episodes, also goes undercover for mm. a period of time. And a lot of the... I mean, both of the characters react really differently to their undercover experiences, but that's actually what happens in real life too a lot of cops will react very differently to the challenges of being undercover yeah and uh, adrian pimento actually as you said he struggles really with his mental health as a result of being undercover you know he ends up banging his head against things and overreacting completely to situations and that's what makes it comedically mm-hmm. funny um, and research actually backs this up so it you know it points out that officers knowingly and purposely develop these relationships with people that they're mm-hmm. going to betray in the end and this is not just with the you know with the villain in inverted commas that they're trying to track but it's also with all these other people around them these people on mm-hmm. the periphery and they know they're going to betray them um, as they assume these identities and, and many find this dual betrayal so the betrayal of the people on the periphery as well as the you know the mm. villain of the piece difficult road to walk and that's what leads to the stresses and and you know those stresses are already inherent in undercover work and it just adds to them mm. yeah now listen karen we've made it to the end of this podcast episode and normally at this we point have. i give listeners a lovely list of the show quotes that we've managed to to squeeze in yes but I actually am going to introduce a new fun feature called Quiz Karen. <laughs> well, you say it's a fun feature, but, you know, I'm not so sure because I've got no I, idea I what these questions are going to do. I want to test your super fan knowledge. Um, so basically okay. when we were looking at quotes that we could try and get in, there are so many wonderful quotes that are just so bizarre that we, we couldn't, I couldn't find ways to fit them in. So I've got a list of them. Okay. And I want you to tell me who it is that said each of them. I reckon, I reckon you'll be oh, all right because crikey. you've watched the show so many times. Okay. Okay, I'll give it a go. I'll give it a go. Let's okay. see. Maybe maybe we'll start with a fairly obvious one. The English language cannot fully capture the depth and complexity of my thoughts, so I'm incorporating emojis into my speech to better express myself. <laughs> Winky face. Gina. Yes. <laughs> nice. I love that. Yes, Gina. Yes, I remember that episode where she was. <laughs> she just uh, she just did emojis all the way through the episode. So Brilliant. Funny, yeah. <laughs> okay. Mmm, texting. That's the most intimate thing you can do for a lover with your fingers, other than washing their hair. 
Oh, yes, that's Charles. Other than washing their hair, he was obsessed with that, wasn't he? <laughs> I, I watched that season again recently and at least six episodes, it felt like he was like, are you going to wash their hair? You should definitely wash their hair. It was such a funny runner. Okay. Anyone over the age of six celebrating a birthday party should go to hell. Oh, now that's a more difficult one. Um, mm, is that Holt, maybe? No. no. Jake? No, I don't no, know. Jake would love a birthday yeah, party. Yeah, he hates. Uh, he hates. Um, what do you call it? Um, with the turkey. <laughs> See, this is Thanksgiving. My he hates Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. He hates. No, Thanksgiving. he loves the birthday party. That was Rosa. Oh yeah, that, that was a classic Rosa game. Yes, okay. of course. <laughs> and one of my favourites: true strength comes from the pelvis, not the mouth. Oh crikey! <laughs> <laughs> I genuinely have no idea. <laughs> It was Boyle. It was another Boyle Oh, quote. well, yeah, that does seem like Boyle, yeah. yeah. They were so funny. Oh, well, well done. Well done. You did pretty well there. Okay. Oh, 50, 50%. That's not bad. That's okay. Not bad. So let's give a little round up then to all of the ones that I did manage to, mm. to get into the episode. We had cool, 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 which I really struggled to say <laughs> several times. Title of your sex tape, the classic runner across mm. all of the seasons. That went, that was good. We got that in a couple of times, some mm. better than others. Bing pot. Oh, it's my favourite Holtism. <laughs> Are you really going to sit there like that, leaning back like a matinee goer, hands folded on your lap like a pervert? <laughs> that was one of my favourite Holt quotes. I absolutely loved it. thought that was really funny. Um, we had the, the Boyle, Susan Boyle quote. Mm -hmm. We had, that is amazingly funny, delivered mm -hmm. deadpan, Holt yeah. style. We had, I don't want to sound dramatic, but today has been suboptimal. Another Holt. We got quite mm. a lot of Holt in here. Yeah. Psychologists are just people who weren't smart enough to become psychics, some classic Gina. Mm -hmm. And then we had a few quite tricky tongue twisters from Jake. <laughs> no doubt, no doubt, no doubt, no doubt, no doubt. Mm -hmm. Toit, noise. And if I had a bike right now, I'd drop it. That's I think a that Gina. Was a Gina, That's Gina. One. Yeah. That was, yeah. yeah. So well done if you managed to spot all of those. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and for more small screen science, don't forget to listen back to our other two seasons. And if you really like this episode and you like police dramas, have a think about listening to Line of Duty and Silent Witness. Yep, you can keep up to date with what we're up to and enjoy some bonus content over on our Instagram at Small Screen Sci Pod, Twitter at Small Screen Sci, and Facebook at Small Screen Sci. And you can even support the show for just a few pounds a month on Patreon, which helps us with the running cost of the podcast. And you can join our little community of members who mm. receive a monthly audio and video bonus bundle mm. from us, where we just have a nice little chat, let you know what we've been up to. And then we'll also share some of our extra brilliant bits from some of the guests that we have on the show that don't quite make it into the episodes. Yeah, and don't forget to make sure that you're subscribed to Small Screen Science. That means that you pick up on our latest episodes and you never miss an episode. Um, and while you're there, leave us a nice review. It really helps us capture new listeners if you do that for us. That would be great. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye. 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 <laughs>